History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I'm here in the HHE studio with the male voice choir to my croaky karaoke, it's Mr. Peter Goddard. That's very nice of you to say. <laughs> oh, is that your Tom Jones? That was, my, that was supposed to be a Welsh voice choir there, but I'll take Tom Jones. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Peter, last week the Dursalator looked kindly upon you, and it graced us all with an episode about coal in Wales during the 1920s, which, on the face of it, seems to be an easy one, but I hope you've mined the depths of history and pit all your energy into unearthing some diamond facts that are truly lit. No pressure, but we're all expecting this episode to be a real blast. <laughs> your pun density is improving massively. That was an <laughs> incredibly closely packed set of puns. <laughs> <laughs> now tell us, Pete, what have you got in store for the listeners today? Well, you are going to dig this episode, Ryan, as we head down a dark tunnel to the pit faces of South Wales. We're going to discover coal and the central role it played in the rise and fall of industry in the area. We're going to learn why it's so important to keep a sharp mandrill. We're going to learn why you don't just hack at coal, Ryan, you have to cut it. We're also going to discover the miner with the soul of a poet who wrote movingly about mining. And we're going to meet the American singing legend behind Old Man River and find out just why he's so deeply connected to the people of South Wales. Welcome to the land of the Red Dragon. Welcome to the land of castles. Croesoe Gumri, welcome to Wales. Okay, Pete, well, there is an awful lot that you've stacked up ready for this episode, none of which made any sense to me. What is a mandible? A mandrill, you will find out, my a friend. A mandrill? Okay, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to find that out. But first, I need to know something, Pete, and that is, where the heck is Wales? I'm glad you asked, Ryan. Well, Wales, or Cymru, which is Welsh for Wales, is a country which is a constituent part of the United Kingdom, the others being England, Northern Ireland and Scotland. So, if you start in the UK, you've made it. You're well done. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> it is, in fact, the kind of bulgy out bit on the west coast between England and Ireland. Yeah, right, slap bang between the two. Exactly. Now, the capital city is Cardiff, and the country has a total area of 21,218 square kilometres or 8,192 square miles. How many Frances is that, Pete? Uh, it's, you need 27 Wales to make yourself a France. OK, that's a lot, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it's a quite small place, really, and consequently yeah. relatively small population as well. 3.1 million people, which is about the size of Bosnia and Herzegovina or Puerto Rico, if you prefer. The predominant religion is no religion at 46% of the population. Wait, 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 wait. No religion is their most dominant their religion. their main religion. <laughs> that's amazing. That's got to be a first for HHE podcast, surely. I, I think it is, actually. It, uh, it certainly doesn't feel like we've had that before. And uh, the rest of them, it won't surprise you to know, is about 43% Christian, a couple of percent of Islam and a smattering of others. Of Jedi? It's got to be a Jedi in, two a, in there. Probably a few <laughs> Jedi down in the valleys. <laughs> 
Uh, now, the languages are English and Welsh. Welsh being a Celtish language, and it's spoken by about 18% of the population. 18%. Should be more, I think. And that's what the Welsh government thinks as well. They plan to double the number of Welsh speakers by 2050. Oh, wow. Okay, well, good for them. Yeah. I mean, they've got road signs and stuff, haven't they? So they makes do. sense. When we visited, we saw everything was in both English and Welsh. And, uh, of course, you and I probably know, but the rest of the world may not. The reason they might want to be increasing the number of Welsh speakers is because they're trying to offset the effect of us, the English. Specifically, mm. after it being a widely used language in the medieval period, in 1536, Henry VIII's Act of Union banned Welsh as a language for official use. Yeah. 400 years later, the Welsh language was recognised a bit by the 1967 Welsh Language Act, and that gave some rights to let people use the Welsh language in legal proceedings. So making a comeback, you might say. It's funny because the only Welsh I know is the Welsh word for slow, and that's because it's on all the roads and it says <laughs> araf. <laughs> That'll be handy for when they're speaking too quickly. You just araf. <laughs> <laughs> araf. <laughs> I love it. Uh, now, it's mountainy and green, hilly and famously valleys, uh, but not Himalayan mountainy. Think kind of rolling Scottish-type hills. The main range is the Snowdonia Range, and Mount Snowdon, or Urdwidfa, has the distinction of being the UK's busiest mountain. Yeah, and I've been on that busiest mountain. Lots of people around? There were a lot of people around, and despite there being a lot of people around, I still got lost and went the wrong way. Did you just follow the path? <laughs> yeah, I thought I was following the path, and then I ended up having to scramble over like this whole... <laughs> up this cliffside and when I got to the top there was just a bunch of people you know elderly folk looking at me like why have you gone that way <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a well good done. question <laughs> <laughs> so as well as attracting tourists and lunatics like Ryan the mountains also impact the weather in Wales uh, and that's because air comes across on the Gulf Stream across the Atlantic Ocean and it get, picks up water and then as the air rises to cross the mountain it gets cooler and then dumps out basically all its moisture so what happens is you get a lot of rain in Wales. And in fact, according to Wikipedia and my experience, Wales is one of the wettest countries in Europe. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience of Wales when I've been there. It's, it has rained a lot. That is the defining image of Wales, isn't it? Rain and mining. However, <laughs> it does mean that it's very green. It's a beautiful place. It is. It is a lovely looking place. I have to say I'm very keen on it. The flag they have is also one of my favourites, actually. It's one of the three in the world we've discussed before that feature a dragon. Yes, yeah, big, big old dragon. <laughs> it's funny, really, when you think that the dragon is kind of an Eastern mythological creature. Well, no, no, no. It goes back a ways in the West as well. The The dragon is called Idraigoch, or the Red Dragon, but it goes way back to kind of medieval mythical times, if you like, because the Merlin, I think it was, was predicting what would happen in the future of the country. And it said, uh, dig down into a basement or a cavern, and there was under there a red dragon, and it was fighting a white dragon. So the red dragon is symbolic okay. of Wales, and the white dragon symbolic of the Saxons. Uh, so the flag has a big red dragon on it. It's super stylized, super cool. And it's uh, on a background that's divided into a white top half and a green bottom. So it kind of looks like a dragon standing on a field. I love it. It's a great flag. I agree. I mean, I think it should be grey instead of white, just to accurately reflect the Welsh skyline. <laughs> With sort of but rain lines go. on it. <laughs> <laughs> now, the national anthem, Ryan, is Mihen Wulad Verni Hadai, Land of My Fathers. And it sounds a little bit like this. I like it. Yeah, it's a gentle rolling one, not a marching one, isn't it? The lyrics to this rhyme were written in 1856 by a Welsh weaver and poet named Evan James. 
Uh, and the tune was written by Evan James's son, James James. James James. James James. Evan clearly ran out of ideas quite early on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really hope he has a middle name that's James. <laughs> JJ James, at your service. <laughs> I love it. I love the endings of songs. They always make me feel so inspired. Uh, it's a nice song, that one. I feel it's a relaxing anthem, not a marching anthem, like I say. Yeah. Uh, there is another song there, Ryan, which is quintessentially Welsh. Uh, it's known sometimes as the Welsh Rugby Hymn, and it's called Cum Ronda, after the Ronda Valley in Wales. This one was written in 1905 by the Welsh composer John Hughes, and it sounds a little bit like this. Now, as well as being associated with the Welsh rugby team, this features in the 1941 film How Green Was My Valley that was directed by John Ford. And that shows the life of people in the South Wales coalfield. So we come back to coal again. And that film, Ryan, notably won the Oscar for Best Picture that year, beating out other little-known losers and also ran called Citizen Kane. Wow, it beat it out. (laughs) It did beat it out. What's even more notable, though, Pete, is the fact that the film is called How Green Is My Valley, and yet it was filmed in black and white. <laughs> yeah, it's a question. It's a rhetorical question with no answer, clearly. <laughs> yeah, you come out of the cinema at the end, you still have no clue. How green how, was it? How green was his valley? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, now, Ryan, there's a really easy joke about the Welsh and sheep that I'm going to ignore for this episode, but it is worth knowing where this stereotype comes from. 90% of Wales's land area is devoted to sheep farming giving them about 9.8 million sheep. Wait, 90% of Wales is dedicated to sheep farming? They do like a sheep up there. <laughs> That's a lot of sheep. And you said 3 million people. So it's three sheep per person. Yeah, you, do, you get allocated your three sheep at birth. That's one of the things that happens in Wales. <laughs> oh, uh, unsurprisingly, good. lamb is a major export. But they think the reason for this is that the soil is just not very good for the growing of crops. So sheep farming is a workable alternative. Are sheep waterproof? They are. They, they've got lanolin in the wool, haven't they? So it just runs right off them. Ah. And the national flower line is the daffodil, one of my favourites. But that, as a symbol, is a recent interloper compared to the ancient symbol of Wales, the leek. Ah, yes, the leek. Now, the leek story, apparently it comes from the time of a king called Cadwallader, who ordered his men to strap a leek to their armour or helmets to distinguish them from the enemy in the heat of battle. Huh, Okay. That's odd. I would have thought a daffodil would have been more, like, obvious, like the bright yellow. It doesn't specify the time of year of the battle, I suppose, so you're really banking on your battle being in springtime if you're using daffodils, aren't you? And you don't want a leak to fall off either, because they're quite heavy. I wondered about this. I was trying to think of how one would go about... If you said to me, hey, Pete, when you go to work tomorrow, secure a leak to your outfit... Or someone will kill you. Exactly. If you, <laughs> The first thing that happens is your leak falls off, and then you turn around and 20,000 of your comrades are approaching with knives... <laughs> You've got a problem, haven't you? <laughs> it's a nice tasty treat, though, mid, mid-fight. mid Exactly so, a mid-battle snack uh, for, the, <laughs> for the warrior on the go. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it. It's Welsh, it's leaky, it's leaky in every sense of the word. <laughs> <laughs> I like Wales. Wales is a great place. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you more after this. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. How do you spell claws? Oh, that's C-L-A-W-S. Why? Well, because I'm writing my letter to Santa. Oh, right. Okay, okay. Sorry. In that case, it's C-L-A-U-S. Ah, okay. All right. Thanks. So what are you writing to Santa for anyway? Well, after last year's bad boy debacle, I found a way to game the system. 
Oh, really? How so? Well, I send a letter to Santa, right? Right. And in the letter, I tell him I've been a very good boy, and so could he please bring me the gift I want most in the world? And what is it you want most in the world? A lump of coal. A lump of coal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That way, if I'm a good boy, I get a lump of coal. And if I'm a bad boy, like last year, I get a lump of coal. It's a win-win North Pole loophole. Well, I mean, I guess technically the theory checks out, but are you sure you really want a lump of coal? Uh, yeah, I do. But why? Well, because I can't let the fat man win. Oh, Ryan, that is petty, small-minded, self-defeating and totally impractical. I love it. Oh, well, if you like that, wait till you hear the sweet scam I've got planned for the Tooth Fairy. Which reminds me, how attached are you to your teeth? All right, Peter. I am fully oriented. I know exactly where Wales is. I know some interesting facts about Wales. But what I really need to know is some Welsh history. I came prepared, Ryan, so here we go. Let's start 280 to 300 million years ago. Yes! <laughs> no, I love it when a history starts way, 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 way back. We're going right to the beginning here. There were massive swampy forests in what we now call Wales. Layers of trunks and branches fall down into the ground. But because of the swampy water, they don't rot away completely because there's not enough oxygen for them to rot properly. So you get oh, okay. thick layers of wood accumulating and other plant matter. And then the weight of the wood and the plant matter gradually squeezes the water out out and compresses the rotting plants. Mm, rotting plants. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to that in 300 million years. Okay. Do the dragons get caught up in this rotting plant mixture? Is that how they get stuck in it? No, no. That's why they have wings, because they have to fly over it. Otherwise, they would get stuck. That's why the d- dragons evolved wings, Ryan. Right. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, we're going to fast forward to 230,000 years ago. Neanderthal man arrives in the area and starts hanging out. Yeah, pre-early man. Pre-early man. One of those Neanderthals rather carelessly leaves his jawbone lying around. Uh, and that's good for us because we find it in the Bont-Newid Paleolithic site in North Wales. I mean, we've all been there, haven't we? Easily it's done. forever fallen off. Classic careless move, isn't it? But uh, he and yeah. his friends basically keep the place to themselves for a couple of hundred thousand years until about 31,000 BCE when Mr. Homo sapiens joins the party. All right, early man is in the house early man hunts and gathers until around 4000 bce when someone in the tribe says do you know what what if we tried a bit of farming and at a stroke that disrupted the hunting industry and the gathering industry both yeah uh so actually that's life having a nice old time bronze age iron age just hanging out early man becomes less early man until the arrival of the romans who presumably add some kind of raincoat to their normal outfits uh and conquered wales from about 48 ce but then after that in 410 ce the romans realize the weather isn't going to clear up any minute now and they leave britain and go back to sunny italy Ah, was that the reason they gave wasn't the dragons uh yeah they left a note going can't take it anymore the weather is too bad we're going home (laughs) now that is fair i understand so from 500 to 700 C, that was known as the Age of Saints in Wales, where you see a bunch of monasteries being established. Uh, and through this period, Wales is basically a number of different kingdoms, including a couple of significant ones, Gwynedd in the northwest and Powys in the east. I've not heard of either of those. Oh, right. Well, in the ninth century, the first person to rule a real big chunk of what we call Wales now was Roderick, Rodri the Great, specifically, King of Gwynedd. Rodri. I love the name Rodri. It's a very Welsh name, isn't it? There are, you're about to get some more very Welsh names. <laughs> okay. <laughs> around the 10th century, Vikings start to show up for some light pillaging uh, until around 1039 CE when Griffith ap Llewellyn. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was a king who not only saw off the Vikings, but he also became the king of pretty much the whole of Wales. He became, you could 
could argue the King of Wales, the first one as we know it today. Uh, did he have a son called the Prince of Wales? Uh, well, we'll talk about Princes of Wales in a moment. But then, all first right. of all, we have to have 1066. What happens, Ryan? Oh, that would be Harold getting an arrow in his eye. Arrow in the eye for Harold. Normans invade. They start in England, but William the Conqueror loved to... Conquer. This was kind, Conquer, of, kind yeah. of his thing. <laughs> so he kept going until the Normans had taken over Wales as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess from his perspective, if you're just taken over and you're not familiar with the land, it's all connected, right? Right, you just keep nudging until you hit wet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there were some Welsh rebellions getting some of their authority back from the Normans, but in 1171, the Welsh leader Rhys Ap Gruffydd met King Henry II and agreed to pay tribute in return for the role of Justiciar of South Wales. Justicia of South Wales. That'll look awesome on a business card. It would, wouldn't it? I don't know what it is, but I like the sound of it. Yeah, it just sounds great. <laughs> but I actually raise it because to, to celebrate this achievement, Reese organises a poetry and song festival in 1176, and that's generally regarded as the first recorded Eisteddfod, which is a festival of poetry and art that's typically Welsh, and they happen to this day. What's been going for that long? Eisteddfod since 1176, at the very least. 900 years it's been going. Yeah, it's they have if there are different ones. It's there is not just one Eisteddfod, but uh, it's a, a right. very Welsh celebration of uh, things artistic. I've got to say, I do love a monarch that is supportive of the arts. It's a good sign for things to come in terms of your culture and progress, rather than it all being about going to war with your neighbour, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, now there are various treaties, rebellions, conflicts between the Welsh and English for the next hundred years or so. But twelve eighty four, the English king Edward the first, aka the Hammer of the Scots, and also the not very on the Welsh either, brought an end to all the fighting and this results in the Statute of Rudlin, which was a change in the constitution which annexed the Principality of Wales to the realm of England, so formally swallowed up. Bet he didn't like poetry. He probably didn't. He did, though, introduce the concept where the King of England's son became the Prince of Wales. There it is. There it is. <laughs> So that was it. There was rebellions breaking out from time to time. Most notably, in 1400, there was a guy called Owen Glendower who managed to free a large portion of Wales. He managed to even get this portion recognised internationally, set up a parliament and everything, but he only managed to last five years before the English came back and took over control again. Yeah, five years without the English. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's a good story for Glendower because he was never caught or betrayed by anyone, despite the huge rewards that were offered for his capture. So next major event, Henry VIII, as we've mentioned, abolishes the Welsh League system and bans the Welsh language from officialdom and then pretty much you're looking at the history of the United Kingdom as a whole right up until the Industrial Revolution where you see the rise of ironworks and the need for coal which has a major impact on the area fortunately for me yeah (laughs) (laughs) and gradually poverty and deprivation become increasingly common mining in particular suffers and it declines into the 1990s when there was only one deep pit mine remaining in the country Mm, right. Uh, now, in 1997, Wales voted for devolution, i.e. more local control. They get a national assembly for Wales set up, and that's where we are today. But one thing I wanted to bring to your attention, Ryan, that's not often talked about as much today as you might think, is that the capital city, Cardiff, is home to a time rift, which is why the Torchwood Institute is based there, to do battle with various alien menaces. Uh, and you can find out more about that if you watch the documentary on the BBC, the series Torchwood, uh, and that will tell you about the people that were working there, including famous members like Captain Jack Harkness and, of course, Doctor Who. Doctor Who? Doctor Who. Who is this Doctor? <laughs> the Doctor Who. I'm joshing, of course, but Cardiff is where they film the series Doctor Who and its various spin-offs, Torchwood and uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures. Sarah Jane Adventures. My favourite of the series. Doubtless. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, Ryan. That's what happened in Wales. Now you know. 
diddly dum diddly dum diddly dum diddly 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 dum diddly dum diddly dum diddly dum diddly dum diddly dum diddly 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 dum diddly dum diddly dum diddly diddly dum I wonder how many people were joining in when we were doing that. It's impossible not to. Uh, do you want a sketch? Yeah. All right. Sire, we have finalised the attack plans. Excellent. Finally, we shall be rid of those pesky Welsh rebels and unite our kingdom as a united kingdom. Actually, that's a good name. Write that down. Of course, Sire. Now, walk me through the plans. Right, well, our network of spies has uncovered the location of the rebel base, so we shall gather our troops and attack them there. Destroying them all, at last! There is just one problem, sire. Well, what is it? The rebel stronghold. It has something of a tricky reputation. Ah, surrounded by hills with little access. Plenty of escape routes, one would imagine. Uh, no, sire. So, what is it? It's, it's hard to say. Well, just give me the gist of it, then. No, sire, it's hard to say. The town. It's called Hlanvera Polgwingish Gogera Quindrobush Hlantasiliogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogog
So I contacted the Big Pit National Coal Museum in Blenarvon, Wales. Yeah, this is a mining museum in which you get to actually go down in a real coal mine. Is awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. But my claustrophobia says not so awesome. <laughs> okay, maybe not for everyone, but for those who are, don't suffer from such things, it sounds like an amazing experience. But they also, of course, being a museum, have experts, as you might expect. And one of their experts, a gentleman called Kerry Thompson, agreed to talk to me. And uh, well, I'll let him introduce himself. I'm Kerry Thompson. Um, I'm curator at Big Pet National Coal Museum in Blenheim. I've been working here since 1999. Prior to that, I worked underground in Cum Colliery and Bertha. Ooh, very nice. So there you go. Not just a coal expert, but an actual miner, real on-the-ground or under-the-ground experience, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> an underground miner. Yeah, I was really lucky to meet him. But uh, to get us started, I asked Kerry how much of a difference the discovery of coal made to Wales. When you think of Wales in the, say, the early 19th century, basically the sheep and cows and small holdings, isn't there, you know? But by the beginning of the, the 19th century, of course, the, the ironworks have come into fruition because there's there's fuel, there's water, there's iron ore, all available around the heads of the valleys. Now, originally the coal industry grew around out of the iron industry, okay? Because basically coal then replaced the timber, which had all gone. So they were using coal to produce mm-hmm. iron. But by the middle of the 19th century, coal became a commodity in its own right. Because uh, originally the Royal Navy used to use coal from the north of England, around Durham. But they found that the South Wales coal gave off less smoke so that a warship couldn't be seen over the horizon. So the Royal Navy concentrated totally on Welsh steam coal to run its ships from the mid-19th century on. Uh, and after the Royal Navy said it was good enough for them, everybody in the world thought it was good enough for them. So Welsh steam coal was transported right along, right around the world. Well, you're talking, say, the Ronda Valleys, which is both 17 miles long and very famous in coal history. But until around 1840, there was about 900 people living there. By the end of the century, there was about 150,000 people living there. You know, it, it had grown up. Even places like Cardiff, which is small, basically fishing villages, if you want, you know, with a couple of hundred people, they, they become the biggest coal docks in the world. That is fascinating, Pete. That I, I genuinely, I, I didn't know I was going to find coal fascinating, if I'm honest. <laughs> Doesn't immediately leap to mind as a gripping topic, but it really is, isn't it? But how funny that, you know, that they were like paying premium for an energy source that was smokeless. Exactly. Smokeless fuel, valuable right from the get-go. But actually, I was surprised as well by the contribution of the Royal Navy. But uh, if that's not enough to convince you that this coal is good, Thomas the Tank Engine fans will be familiar with Henry the Green Engine. Yes, Henry! <laughs> In the episode Coal. He's feeling ill and the diagnosis is too small a firebox. Uh, but fortunately, the solution is the uh, Sir Topham Hat, I think his name is, uh, decides that Henry should use Welsh coal instead of whatever inferior coal he was running before. And that burns better and helps Henry run well and do his job. Oh, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, Welsh coal there is the quality coal to have. So, yeah, there's lots of lovely coal across Wales, but how do you get it out? So I asked Kerry to explain what mining might look like in Wales in the 1920s. It's, it's all according to course, I guess, because methods change. And they, but basically, up until the mid-20th century, they'd undercut in the coal by hand with a pick, what you call a mandrel. So they undercut the coal to a depth up to your elbow, like that, lying on the side. Then they wedge that in, and then they cut another cut uh, vertically. And then, of course, they pull the coal out because they don't want small coal. And until the 1940s, 1950s, you couldn't really sell small coal. It was only when the power stations became developed and they actually shoot in coal dust into the generators or whatever. 
know. But originally, they wanted as large lump as possible. So you have to be very careful. So you don't have to hack at coal or throw yourself at it. You have to be pretty careful what you're doing. Otherwise, you're breaking it up. So it's broken up into lumps. You get the lumps down under certain um, procedures. You've got a boy with you called the Collier's boy. It could be a son, it could be a nephew, it could be a complete stranger. But their duty was to use what they called a curling box, which looks like a large sugar scoop, about two foot across by about okay. two foot deep. Yeah. And they had to carefully load the lumps onto that, drag it back to the drum, which is the four-wheeled cart, which came out, and then load it very carefully on there because they didn't get paid for small coal. You're not just swinging a pick random at anything. You're actually surgically removing it. So they've got to make sure they've got a very sharp pick for a start. So they used to carry, the pick used to have a detachable head and they'd carry three or four heads sharpened. And then at the end of the shift, then they'd pass them up to a sharpening shop who would sharpen them for the next day. And of course, you had your number on them, so you knew which one was yours. So you always had a sharp mandrel. What's the old saying? Cool head, sharp mandrel. And a, a gentleman comes in with a horse and, a, and an empty drum. They tumble the empty drum into the side, because you haven't got much room down there. About. So you tumble the empty drum off the rails, you move the coal out, tumble the empty one back in and take it into the collier, and then they turn the horse around in the roadway, put it on the front, and then they take it out to a main roadway where it joins lots of other drums together to make a train of drums, a journey of drums, and then they are taken up to the shaft, you know, and then they are dragged out all together, uh, 30 or 40 of them together, and then they wound up the shaft. So there was two checkways on top of the pit. So when the drums went past them, they'd mark them out. Now, one checkway was for the trade union and one checkway was for the owners. So there was an owner's representative check-in and a trade union representative check-in. Wow. So you can have multiple different heads for your mandrill. Mandrill, yes. Just pickaxe, essentially. But yes, that's the that's the aim of the game. So basically to... That's cool because I've only ever seen like a pickaxe and thought, well, it's just a pickaxe, right? I didn't think it had interchangeable heads. Well, it, that's very cool. You need to keep it because you're, you're cutting coal. You're not hacking at it, Ryan. You've been you've been warned. <laughs> I feel like you're hacking at it. Like I hear what he's saying, but come on. Everyone's seen images of the miner with a pickaxe hacking away at rock. They're not like sitting there with a knife and fork. But yeah, that's, so that's it. You slice out the biggest lumps you can. This boy scoops it into the cart, which is called a tram. It gets marked on the side because you get paid by your own cutting. You don't just get a daily rate. Uh, you coal conger up to the surface and then owners and representatives of the union say, yep, that looks like that amount of coal. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. So you get paid by the load, not just, you know, for the day. Yeah, and there's more to it than that even, and we'll talk about that later. But uh, it's actually worth mentioning, in Wales in particular, a miner wouldn't just spend his day at the face cutting the coal. He had to do a bunch of other jobs as well. And Kerry explained that to me like this. You know, they obviously they're not doing it all day because they still got to put their posts up. They've got to lay their rails. They've got to rip part of the roof down. You know, and South Wales Colliers did all the major work. If you went to Nottingham, you'd have different people doing the roof support, different people laying the rails. But in South Wales, they did them all, which had a problem um, from a trade union point of view because the price lists, because each one of these tasks had a different price, which had to be negotiated and struck over sometimes. Right, People didn't agree with them. So the South Wales price lists are the most complicated in Britain and they cause lots of problems. Okay, now that is interesting. Again, I I assume you get your pickaxe, you go down, you dig out coal. 
I didn't realize there was all that other work involved. Yeah, that yeah. sounds a- annoying. At least they were paid well for it. Yeah, well, about that. We'll come to that later as well. But uh, <laughs> I have mentioned unions twice now, and I'm going to give a bit of background on the industry. Through the 19th century, it was all private enterprise. So the mines were owned by private businesses and conditions were tough, and they were basically trying to squeeze as much labor out of the men without paying them as they possibly could. But then World War I happened, and, well, I'll ask Kerry to explain what happened in World War I. It was nationalised during the First World War, basically nationalised, I don't know if they actually called it that. By 1919, uh, 1921, it had gone back to the ownership. So during the war, the miners' wages rose, conditions got better, and then all of a sudden they threw it back on the owners who decided, no, we're not having that. And um, that ended all the luxury and the, what do they say, uh, turkey and miners' baths and things like that. So it, it went back to the normal hard-nosed capitalism, didn't it? Turkeys in a bath, Pete? Yeah. What's that all about? That is a good question that I have not actually dug further into. I'll have to bring that to the verdict because I wondered why miners were bathing with their turkeys as well. <laughs> Glad I have a clean turkey, I guess. I guess so. But basically, things got relatively better during World War One, but they ran the risk of going backwards again with the return to private ownership. And that actually led in 1919 to the appointment of something called the Sankey Commission. Ah, uh, Mrs. Sankey was my favourite primary school teacher. Ah, possibly a descendant, who knows? But uh, yeah. this was a Sir John Sankey who led a royal commission, looked at the future of the mining industry, and they said, right, let's meet in the middle on wages, and also we think we should renationalise the industry. So hmm. the government who commissioned this report looked at the recommendations and went, oh, OK, yeah, let's not do that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Threw it on the fire immediately. Pretty much, and uh, topped off the coal with it, basically. But uh, this yeah. led to some challenging times. They went back to private ownership, and... Uh, So the 20s became quite a challenging period where there was a lot of strife between workers and owners. And this is the year also the decade of the general strike, which took place in 1926, which was kind of a mass strike for everybody. But the miners held out for months even after that. But ultimately, it ended in defeat for the workers. And then actually that leads into kind of what happens next, which is pretty much the decline of the mining industry. So I asked Kerry what happened over the 1920s and the 1930s. Between 1921 and 1936, 241 mines in Wales, in South Wales, were closed down. And from 270,000 miners, which had been there in, in 1913, the peak of the coal industry, it went down to 130,000, so basically halved. So people who had been flowing in from the end of the 19th century on were flowing back out. Yeah, it's all a little bit depressing, isn't it? It doesn't have a massively happy ending, although one might argue not working down a mine was has its upside. <laughs> uh, yeah, when everything in your area is geared just purely around mining, then you take that away. What What is everyone supposed to do? That was exactly the problem, which was there's not 20 employers of which one goes down. It's the town that is entirely employed by the mine is now entirely unemployed. So you can't suddenly put 2,000 people out of work and expect them to work in the local shop or get a job in the library, yeah. can you? So, And that's exactly what happens. You have these places that become really severely hit by unemployment. Yeah, it's just no way out. What can you do? It's crazy to me. So anyway, that's our period, the 1920s, which basically marks the beginning of the end for coal in Wales. But fortunately for us, the period A, hasn't been forgotten, uh, but B, was particularly chronicled by one man who was a, a remarkable poet Poet Miner, uh, you might call him, and we're going to talk about him after this. All right, Pete, so what's up next? 
Well, uh, I was talking about a man who chronicled life in the mines in the 1920s and 30s, wasn't I? So That's right, yeah, the poet miner. The poet miner. This is a man who is called Bert Coombs, and he was born in 1893. And he started life growing up actually on an English farm, which was a pretty hard life on its own. So in 1910, he leaves home and he goes to South Wales, where he becomes a miner. Nice. Yeah, he, he works down the pit. It's hard work. It's dangerous work. But he also, he has the heart of an artist, like I said. Uh, and when he gets home, he, he'd write. He becomes a, a writer. He submits short stories to various people uh, it will not surprise you to learn frequently about mining <laughs> yeah i mean write about what you know right? exactly so so eventually he gets a story accepted by a magazine called new writing so the literary publication that tried to break down social barriers and shock horror would publish work by working class authors I mean, that is disgusting, but (laughs) in this instance, let's allow it. So, yeah, they published Coombe's short story called The Flame, and that's the beginning of a bit of literary success for him. How do you find time? Honestly, it must be exhausting doing that. Uh, Yeah, it's it's known to be relatively tiring to mine at all, (laughs) and then to go home and write a book. Write a book. Yeah, and he is important because he does write books, and one of the books that we are particularly going to focus on is called These Poor Hands, subtitled The Autobiography of a Miner Working in South Wales. So this is about his time in the coalfields, particularly in the 1920s and the 1930s. And uh, he's created what Kerry Thomas, our historian, said to this day is probably the single best record of coal mining in Wales. Uh, it's a good read. It's worth a look if you're interested in the topic. And uh, But from my reading of it, I took two major themes away. One, just how hard the life of a miner was. Uh, and two, the, the class struggle, the struggle between the workers and the bosses. Okay. So pretty easy to cover the hardship part. First off, to even get to work, which could be quite a little way away from where you lived, it's hard going. Let me give you a quote from him. I was downstairs before half past four in the morning that I started work at the new place. An early start was needed because we had to climb nearly three miles of mountain before we got to work. Yeah, but I have to commute on buses and underground and stuff. I mean... Sometimes you don't even get a seat. Right. Sometimes I, don't, I get up so late, 8.30, I don't even get time to get to Starbucks for a coffee. I know. Talk to, talk to us about suffering when you haven't had your coffee, Coombs. Exactly, Coombs. <laughs> but... Now, when they got there, the work was hard, obviously, and uncomfortable. And one of the things I hadn't realised, again, because of my kind of Hollywood image of mining, I guess, was uh, it's wet a lot of the time. So he says, quote, we were always working in about six inches of water. There is nothing pleasant about water underground. It looks so black and sinister. It makes every move uncomfortable and every stroke with the mandrill splashes the water about your body. Yeah, that just sounds (laughs) dreadful. Yeah, it just doesn't sound like a fun experience at all. But it's not just water. Coombs does mention that they take food with them into the mine. But he adds, bear this in mind, Ryan, quote, food must be protected by a tin for the rats are hungry and daring. There are rats down there. There are rats down there and they want your lunch. I suppose that's what the dragons eat. (laughs) They've got to eat something. I guess so. But uh, Coombs also notes it's not all terrible life down there because they get, quote, we had a quarter of an hour for food. Quarter of an hour? I have to eat at my desk. (laughs) Nice 15 minute break. You know, just relax, kick back for 15 minutes. Wow. So it won't That's f- hardcore. It's brutal, isn't it? So yeah. it won't also surprise you to learn it was physically dangerous. There's loads of tales of accidents and injuries. And on one occasion, he notes, uh, quote, very gently, I examined the injured man and found he had a fractured collarbone and four broken ribs. He seemed relieved. 
Oh, he seemed relieved, did he? <laughs> that was a minor... Relieved that he'd only got a broken collarbone <laughs> and several ribs, because I guess the alternative would have been much worse that was running through his head. Well, tragically, of course, there were numerous deaths, sometimes pretty horrific. Co- Coombs writes about one of these. This isn't very nice if you want to shut your ears for the next minute or so. Quote, Jack seemed to shiver all over, then slump forward. The father stumbled round to that side of the tram and found that a large stone had slid from the side and its sharp edge had caught Jack against the tram, almost severing the upper part of his body from the lower. Yeah. Now, what in that can you case, say about that? Well, what you can say is the miner's death was compensated. The victim's family were given just £18 for a human life. Okay, but in those days, that was probably all right, right? Well, not so much, because if you want a point of comparison, a pit pony was worth £40, so a human life was less than half a pony. Ah, right. Yes. Hard to get motivation up to get up at 4.30 in the morning when you know your life is worth half of a pony. Yeah, it's pretty bad, isn't it? But also on top of that, Ryan, because there's not enough grimness in this story so far, if you manage to avoid death or injury, you've got the lingering fear of silicosis. This is a lung disease caused by inhaling dust. Uh, there's a really vivid passage where Coombs is in the pub uh, and a man comes in and just has a one drink and he's clearly not well. And he's everyone looks at him and his mate goes, what's up with him? He says he's got silicosis. And Coombs writes, the stone dust had got inside his lungs. Then every respiration had damaged and torn the delicate lining of the chest as if rough stones were being rubbed inside a silken pocket handkerchief. This dust accumulated in his breathing organs and closed together like cement. When the lungs were torn, they were no longer airtight. Every day his breathing became more difficult. Soon it would be impossible. Oh, that's just awful. So the the description of, of stones rubbing against each other inside of a silk handkerchief, that's, that is evocative. That is a re- and that's why he's a really good writer. He really brings this stuff to life and it's, uh, <laughs> albeit not very nice things he's bringing to life. So that's wow. it, Ryan. That's the hardship section. And unsurprisingly, that then links to class struggle. So yeah. these- At least it pays well. Yeah. That's what I keep coming <laughs> you, back to. You do keep coming back to that. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, writes, <laughs> Coombs writes quite evocatively again of the ongoing mistrust between owners and miners. There's injustices inflicted on the workers and tricks that owners use to minimise what workers are going to be paid. And he talks about one thing which I would call an early example of what I understand to be Hollywood accounting. I think you've heard of Hollywood accounting, where no film ever really makes money because of tricks of the accounting trade. So to prevent having to pay the men so much, the colliery owns the coal mine, but it also owns the shipping companies that buy the coal from the coal mine and then sell it on to other people. So effectively, the mine will sell the coal at a low price to another company that's actually owned by the same people and then they sell it on a markup to the ultimate users so that way it looks like the coal mine isn't really making any money i mean i guess it's clever accounting uh, but you know well yeah well this is what coom says it says what does it matter to them if they sell their own coal to themselves at a loss as long as they get a good price for it when they sell it again as agent capitalism yeah i know you come away from it not keen on it in red in tooth and claw. That miners didn't just work as a day rate. They didn't just get paid hourly or anything like that. As we said, they not only were paid by the amount of coal that was brought up, and that's why they were marking their trams, they also had to pay for and maintain their own tools. Coombe says, John had a pile of tools and they were all needed. And he lists the tools. He says he valued them at £8. That's just under half a human life, let's not forget. Yeah. And he was forced to buy them himself. Nearly every week he had to buy a new handle of some sort and fit it onto the tool at his home. So his wages were not all clear benefit and his work not always finished when he left the colliery. That's kind of bad enough, but at least it's kind of above board. You know what you're getting into. Then Coombs also talks about one of the tricks of the trade, if you like, where there's a period when the miners were trying to get more payment per 
gram or whatever it is for coal because the mine was difficult to work the scene was difficult to get at uh and they wanted to get compensated more fairly so whilst these negotiations are happening the, the owners approach burt coombs and his pal and they say oh we've got a, a nice shift for you nice and easy make as much money as you can you'll get because you're getting paid by the by the ounce we'll give you a good old seam to work and it, you, you will have a good shift this time okay that sounds great yeah he grafts hard he fills the trams as does everything he can. He says, we went home very proud of our earning ability and with the slogging that had been done, quite forgotten. What neither of us realised until afterwards was that for our pound, we had betrayed all hope of our fellow colliers having the highest price for cutting coal. Their claims were defeated because it was shown that a large amount of coal could be filled. After that, no one ever earned more than or even the amount of his minimum wage. Oh, I see. So they set the bar that nobody else could then ever be. Exactly. So they find the owners find a nice choice spot, give a couple of guys an incentive to work it as hard as they can, and then go, well, that's the baseline. But of course, the baseline was set at the easiest possible place. And right. Then, so you're never get, no one else is ever going to be able to get as much as that exactly. because it was such a choice area full of coal. Right. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> right. So what do you do, Ryan? You might start supporting your local union. Well, the owners would again do what they could to prevent that. They love that. They, they do. I mean, in my experience, <laughs> owners of companies love unions. Yeah. So Bakum says, officials often prefer to engage men from a distance because these men are difficult to organise. They must hurry to their conveyances and cannot attend a meeting. So you hire from far away because people are going to hurry home. They can't hang around and get themselves organised. Yeah. Uh, and if you did succeed in becoming an activist, Ryan, you might find your life getting made more difficult in various sneaky, underhanding ways in the mine itself. Coombs writes again, a collier may be kept so short of rails that he has to throw his coal four or five yards farther than the man in the next place. He may be kept short of trams or timber or put in a place where the coal is very stiff or there's a lot of water. The man does not, he cannot fill so much coal. So you make trouble, you find yourself in the horriblest bits of the mine making the least money because it's the hardest to work. But yeah, so it won't surprise you to learn that Coombs is very much on the side of the workers. Uh, he sees the human cost of inequality, writes really poignantly at one point. He says, quote, if a man is sensitive and thinks about things, he must surely get to hate the injustice of it all. I feel I hate the continual slavery and dust, the poor clothes and bare living, the need for decent men to beg their bread, the huge van that comes around every Friday and disgorges four beefy ex-policemen who rush into a house and come out with the furniture of some miner whilst he stands white-faced on the side with his children crying the eviction from his home of some miner who has opened his mouth too wide or refused to be robbed of his wages when they were due i mean what can you say i also feel that injustice and it's uh, a grim way to live uh but look so these poor hands is a book that was published in 1939 by victor gollantz was a left-wing press and it was widely praised for its authenticity unsurprisingly but also its writing uh in 1974 the times literary supplement wrote a rather backhanded compliment said coombs was one of the few proletarian writers of the 1930s who were impressive as writers rather than proletarians. Oh, okay. <laughs> so a sort of snooty compliment to make to someone. Yeah. But, uh, com a compliment nonetheless. <laughs> exactly, right? But at uh, the, the end of 39, the book had sold 50,000 copies. So I guess he must have made a few pennies from that at least. That's fantastic. Do you have a copy of this uh, book? I have an, an e-copy of it. It's a good read and it is out there. So do do go and buy it if you're interested. Um, we'll put a link into the notes. And Coombs writes throughout the rest of his life, often about mining. And he continued to be a miner till the 1950s where he gets a serious back injury. Perhaps unsurprising again. Uh, and Bert eventually dies in 1974, aged 81, having had quite the life. Well, there you go. Bert Coombs, we salute you. Indeed we do. Darling... Yes, Bert? The 
boys were thinking of going down the mine today, and I was wondering if maybe Again? I Again? Oh, you and the boys are always going down that mine. Well, you know, it's just a bit of fun. Oh, right. Well, aren't you lucky you can afford that luxury? Oh, don't start this. It lets me relax. I, and I need a bit of rest after the week I've had. Oh, sure, yes. Mr Wordsmith all tuckered out from his writing, is he? Do you know how hard writing is? I just want a bit of time underground. Well, I work hard too, you know. Eight hours of cutting coal helps clear my mind. No, no, you're right. It's fine. Go down the mine with your friends, whatever. Or maybe you could try out your new set of mandrill heads. What? Oh, I saw them. I mean, exactly how many of those things do you need anyway? They were on sale! All right, Pete, so have we dug our way to the end of the coal in Wales stories, or is there anything else you can fill our steam engines with? <laughs> Prepare your shovel, Ryan, because I have one last story. Uh, this is Hooray! on the topic of coal in Wales, so it is, of course, about an American singer. Wait, what? That sounds like something I would do. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit Ryan-y, isn't it? But yeah, there's a singer called Paul Robeson. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. Well, he was, uh, you will find you've heard of one of his songs, I think, later. But uh, Paul was a black man born in America in 1898. So not exactly the most advantageous start in life. Yeah. But he was clearly a very talented individual because, number one, he earned a law degree. Wait, a singer and a lawyer? Uh, well, no, he learned a law degree whilst playing football in the NFL. <laughs> Wait, what, what was he? Was he all of these? A lawyer, a, a footballer a, and a singer? It, it certainly gives the impression that he could have done absolutely anything he wanted to, but singing is what he eventually became particularly known as. He gets a stage role off Broadway in a show called The Emperor Jones. It's a great success. One thing leads to another. And soon enough, Robeson is in 1928, our time period, finding himself playing a role in a show called Showboat in the West End of London. Ah, Showboat. I know that one well. Do you, do, do you though? <laughs> I do. Okay, and do you know the breakout hit from the show? Um, yes. I'm going to play it for you and you tell me if you recognise this. Old Man River, that old man river He must know something But don't say nothing He just keeps rolling He keeps on rolling along. Yeah, that was Old Man River, quite a classic of the genre. His voice was great. It was really, really booming, isn't he? And in 1928, it might have been 1929, I've seen a couple of uh, versions of it, but Robeson was walking home after the show and he hears a choir singing in the street. And he goes to investigate and he finds that the singers are unemployed Welsh miners from Rhonda Valley who'd marched to London to protest the poverty and the lack of support in the South Wales Valleys. So apparently Robeson has a chat with these guys and goes, he sympathises with the oppressed. He joins in the march. He sings for them, apparently. He donates some money to the miners to help them get a train home afterwards. And this is the beginning of an ongoing, unlikely friendship between the Welsh Valleys and this guy, Paul Robeson. Really? Okay. Yeah, he, he, gets, <laughs> I love it. he gets more and All more right. famous, but he never forgets this connection he has with the Welsh miners. He makes a point of touring Wales, and uh, in 1934 he was performing a concert at Carnarvon in Wales, and uh, there was a disaster, a colliery disaster in Gresford, which killed 266 men. Robeson decides he wants to do something to help. He donates his fees from the concert to help the victims' families. 
Yeah, good man. How about that? Yeah, he continues his Welsh connection. 1940 stars in a film called The Proud Valley, where he plays David Goliath. He's an African-American sailor who deserts his ship and becomes a coal miner in Wales, and that was filmed in the Rhondda Valley as well. Did he Did he get a screenwriting credit? I can't imagine that he just found that script. Probably. He's turned it down <laughs> to everything else, hasn't he? Um, but... <laughs> I love the story, but what if? How about? Bear what with me. our main hero? <laughs> Okay. So yeah, he becomes more and more famous, but he also becomes more and more interested in left-wing thought and causes and equality and issues of socialism and injustice. Uh, and he becomes interested in and voices support for and visits the Soviet Union. Ah, uh, okay. So this was frowned upon, I would say, by the Americans. Yeah, this not go very well down in the old US of A. Uh, in fact, gets him yeah. cancelled and not in the modern way where you get to still tweet. Uh, it's actually a much harder kind of cancelling where basically the US government refuses to issue him a passport. And when he asks why, they tell him it was because of his frequent criticism of the treatment of blacks in the United States. <laughs> That's the reason why. But OK, so he now doesn't have a passport. So he's just floating around the world, is he? Without no, he's back in the US with his... So he's oh, he can't leave. He can't leave, yeah. So, uh, I'm with you. Yeah, in 1952, Robeson was awarded the International Stalin Prize by the Soviet Union, which I can't <laughs> imagine helped him very much. <laughs> yeah, cheers, guys. Thank you so much. Trying to keep a low profile there, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1956 it's full on he finds himself literally in front of mccarthy's house un-american activities committee reds under the bed the whole nine yards yeah that's not a good place to find yourself not really so eventually he has his passport restored and he returns to traveling the world sharing his amazing voice with everybody but overall all these experiences take their toll and he becomes pretty paranoid um, I think he just becomes sensibly paranoid, but he's described yeah, as... Yeah, I was going to say. I could see why. Yeah, exactly. He does suffer a nervous breakdown, though. And in 1963, he retires from public life where he stayed until his death in 1976. So I'm going to leave you with two things, Ryan. One of them is a quote from Robeson that I think is quite uh, telling. He says, The artist must take sides. He must elect to fight for freedom or slavery. I have made my choice. I had no alternative. There you go. But they also say finish on a song. So I'm going to add, despite not having a passport, Robeson still managed to perform concerts for his friends in Wales by what I'm going to describe as an early Zoom meeting. He would sing over a transatlantic telephone line. In the 1920s? The, no, this was in the 1950s. So the one oh, gig was okay. in 1957 <laughs> as part of the Miner's Eye Steadfod. And I'm going to play you a little bit of it now. I will note that I've edited the start down a little bit for time. There's a little bit of talking at the start. Hello, Paul Robeson. On behalf of the South Wales Miners... And all the people gathered at this ice steadwood, I extend to you warm greetings of friendship and respect. We are happy that it has been possible for us to arrange that you speak and sing to us today. We would be far happier if you were with us in person. Our people deplore the continued refusal of your government to return your passport and to deny you the right to join with us in our festival of song. We shall continue to exert what influence we can to overcome this position. We look forward to the day when we shall again shake you by the hand and hear you sing with us in these valleys of music and song. As one of our Welsh songs puts it, we'll keep a welcome in the hillsides. We'll keep a welcome in the vales. This land of ours will still be singing when you come back again to Wales. Thank you so much for your very kind words. My warmest greetings to the people of my beloved Wales, and a special hello to the miners of South Wales. I'm going to begin with one of my own songs, Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel, Bringing Freedom to Our People? Didn't my Lord deliver 
Daniel delivered, Daniel delivered, Daniel did my Lord deliver, Daniel and why not every man? What a voice! It was a heck of a voice, wasn't it? And I'm going to leave you with a final quote. We're going to go back to These Poor Hands by Burt Coombs. Uh, in the book, he actually hears a song playing and he says, quote, I recognise that it is Paul Robeson. Then he stops everything he's doing and he says, uh, to do anything else except listen would be to insult one whom I count as one of the greatest men of all time. Oh, wow. Okay. That says something, doesn't it? it? Really because does. I can't believe that he was alone with that. I imagine he's probably speaking for his people there when he says that. Absolutely. And uh, before we finish, that is everything, Ryan. But I would like to thank Kerry Thomas once again for his generosity with his time. Uh, and I would like him to finish for us, actually, by telling us a little bit about the Big Pit Museum. Big Pit is the most wonderful museum in the world. The main thing we got is the sort of the hands-on experience who's actually going down a real coal mine, right? A small coal mine, but a real coal mine. So you're actually going down the original shafts. You're walking around some of the original workings underground. So you've got all that and you've got a minor guide with you. So they are going to take you around underground. I want to go to the Big Pit Museum. Well, if you want the real mine experience for your claustrophobia, you might want to get underground with those guys and learn more about coal mining in Wales. So get to South Wales, visit the Big Pit and tell Kerry that Pete sent you. I think I'll just go to the gift shop. <laughs> Shut your eyes and swing a hatchet around and feel like you're in the mines. It's up to you, Ryan. <laughs> you do you. <laughs> I'll do me. Old man Dursley, that old man Dursley, he must judge something. But grades keep lowering, he keeps on judging, and Ryan keeps crying away. Old man Dursley, that old man Dursley, he's just so grumpy. He makes us jumpy, but old man Dursley, he keeps on marking us down. Okay, Pete, well, look, that was genuinely fantastic. What a trip underground you took us on into the, the realm of the coal. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed researching it. It was a great uh, topic. I was really lucky, I have to say. Yeah, you really dug out a few um, real gems there. That was amazing. And how amazing was it to have Kerry? Yeah, he was really generous with his time and I really enjoyed talking to him. He's a great guy. Yeah, subtitles will be available on our website. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, for our uh, overseas audience. They might have struggled a bit there, maybe. <laughs> but look, Pete, you know what time it is. Is it for the audience's eyes to swivel in their ears on their no, sockets? No, 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 no. <laughs> Normally it would be. No, but this time of the year, Pete, it's time for the uh, audience's baubles to swivel <laughs> on their tree. Of course, of course. <laughs> Towards me in my little elf costume. Because, Pete, it is time for the Santa-later. The Santa-later, yay! Ho, ho, yay. Ho. So, yes, let's wheel it out. 
<gasps> Magical time of year. Okay, well, I love it. It's beautiful, the red and the green. We have to dust it off a little bit. Once a year is not a great amount of uses. Why do we build it so big? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's run you. It is. Let's run you some place, time and topic. Are you ready? I am ready for my place. Your place is... (laughs) Turkey. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I would have thought the place would be bathtub. (laughs) <laughs> easy now you're not a minor with your really turkey, turkey in your for our christmas episode no exactly. way People turkey for christmas this, ryan that really does sound rigged doesn't it, it okay does. well that's fantastic turkey okay <laughs> turkey for christmas all right give me a time time period ryan is oh i'm not sure how to think about this uh it's 1400 to 1600 oh okay so the christmas magic ran out uh, <laughs> 1400 bit, to 1600 that's not uh, too bad i don't think there's probably two, something there 200 years right yeah you'll find oh, something those sneaky ottomans were probably up to some christmasy goodness yeah probably they famously enjoy christmas in that islamic country <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless let's see what the topic has to offer okay your topic is jingle bells Dursley smells. <laughs> Ryan gets an A. <laughs> <laughs> yes, That's so amazing. your topic is jingle bells, your time period 1400 to 1600, and your place is Turkey. Well, there you go, everyone. Christmas special coming up. Okay, well, look, there you go. That is the show for this week. I hope you've all enjoyed today's show. And if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete has talked about, you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Indeed, we would love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And if you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook or X, you can find us at... H-H-E podcast. And if you subscribe to any of those, you'll get an alert every time we post extra content like additional facts, photos, pictures from the show and other things, bits and pieces. Or you can send us an email with the subject line newsletter to Pete and Ryan at HHEpodcast.com and we will package all those up and send them straight to your inbox. But we are going to be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Pete. Thanks to you, Ryan. And a big thanks to Kerry and the Big Pit Mining Museum. Thanks, Kerry and the Big Pit Mining Museum. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Is that a bird? Yep, I bought a canary. Oh, that's nice. It's good to have a pet. (laughs) He's not a pet, Pete. Really? No, he's a working bird. Canaries have long been used as an early warning system for miners. Oh, right, yeah. So instead of a smoke alarm, all I have to do is wait for this little guy to sing his song and warn me there's a problem. Ryan, that's not how that works. What do you mean? Well, the canary doesn't sing to warn miners about dangerous gas. It dies, Ryan, and that's when the miners know to leave the mine. Oh, my God, that's terrible. Well, for the canary, yeah, but it's a lifesaver for the miners. Right. Well, that's not going to happen to you, is it? Hey, birdie. Birdie? Birdie! Pete, 
Something's wrong with Birdie. Ah. What's happened to him? It looks like Birdie's died, Ryan. Sorry, mate. Wait, does that mean there's toxic gas in here? Uh, I may have eaten quite a lot of beans last night. Oh, right. Okay. Well, then I, I, I'd better get out of here. Thanks, Birdie. Your death was not in vain. Llanfyr y pwlgwyngyll gogerach chi'n drobwsh llantysilio gogoch.